0: Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one should give what they have decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, You will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you, Because of the surpassing grace God has given you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. A word of prayer together. Father, thank you for your your word, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Father, may our hearts and minds be open and attentive to you this morning. May we hear uh, your voice, Uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the last um, uh, two or three Sundays, we've been uh, thinking about uh, God's generosity towards us. And um, sadly, it didn't get recorded, but Alan just preached a fantastic sermon last Sunday. If those of you got the notes from um, John 13 and Jesus washing his disciples' feet and the, the, just, the lavish, extraordinary... Grace of God and generosity of God and, uh, you know, just thinking about the fact that, you know, Jesus chose Judas and at the Last Supper washed Judas' feet knowing that Judas was going to betray him to death. Just a wonderful illustration of the extraordinary love of God towards us. And Paul, in this passage, he writes about grace, God's grace towards us, undeserved, undeserved merited. So having thought about God's goodness to us and as we've, you know, we've brought these gifts which are going to go up to Hancross Pantry as, just as an expression of our response to what God has done for us. That's what we want to think about this morning is if God has been so good towards us uh, then how, how do we respond? How do we give of ourselves to him? So the context for um, this uh, passage from 2 Corinthians is that the, uh, the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, uh, those uh, Jews who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus, have uh, recognised him as their Messiah, as their Saviour, uh, they're in dire straits. Uh, they're in extreme uh, poverty and they are, you know, they're desperate. Uh, they're going hungry. Uh, all sorts of deprivations going on, and so Paul, as he's travelling around planting churches amongst Gentiles, is aware of this. And so one of the things that um... there was a whale. Uh, one of the things that uh, Paul is doing is he's, he's raising a collection as he goes around. He's encouraging the Gentile Christians who have benefited from the faith that they have received from their Jewish brothers and sisters who were the first to come to faith. He's saying, well, you've benefited from them spiritually. Uh, it's only right and proper that, you know, you should, you know, now that they're in hardship, uh, you should give to... So Paul is, is gathering a collection and you notice it in, in one or two of Paul's letters. He makes reference to the fact that he's raising a collection and he's going to take it back to Jerusalem to bless the church family that are there. And that's the context of this passage So as we unpack it, just have that in the back of your mind. That's the context. That's what Paul is seeking to do. And so he's encouraging the church in Corinth to be generous in their giving. And he starts verse six. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If you only put a few seeds in, uh, you're only going to get a few plants out. If you put a lot of seeds in... Uh, you're going to get a lot out. In my garden, there are a lot of seeds gone in. I have no idea what they are, but there's a lot growing because a lot of seeds have gone in because that's what happens. The more you put in, the more you get out. So Paul just states the obvious. uh, Put a little in, you'll get a little out. Put a lot in, you'll get a lot out. How does that uh, translate into uh, financial giving? Does it mean that if if you put a... A, a little in you'll get a, a little out if you put a lot in you'll you'll get well not necessarily there's a there's a different connection that we'll um, come on to later because there is an there's an intimate connection between our, uh, our our material lives and our spiritual lives they are bound up in each other and one of the uh, one of the problems that we cause ourselves is we divorce one from the other and we think our spiritual lives and material lives are quite separate things Uh, So we can allow God into our spiritual lives, but we keep him at arm's length in our material lives because we like it that way. But Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. He's encouraging a generous heart. And then in verse seven, he says that there there are three ways in which you can give. There are three ways in which you can respond to the generosity that God has shown you. He says, each person should give what they have decided in their heart to give uh, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver so when we think about the riches that God has given to us and we kind of we think about well how we might share the goodness of God and the good things that he has blessed us with in this life there are there are three ways that we can do that he says he says the first is uh, well we we can give reluctantly uh, we can give reluctantly. We can give because we, well, we kind of, well, we kind of think we probably ought to, and uh, and there's a bit of peer pressure. So sometimes we kind of think, well, well, other people are giving, so I, you know, I probably ought to, but there's a bit of reluctance about it. I remember when my um, uh, long many years ago in the early 1980s, when my brother was at, uh, at university, and uh, I remember him telling this story of an evening service at St Ebbs Church in Oxford, and the the collection plate was going around the congregation. Uh, as, um, as it frequently used to be the case. Uh, we don't do that, but the um, you know, collection plate was going around and uh, he looked in his wallet and he had a 1P piece and a £5 note. And, uh, and so he's kind of thinking, well, which one am I going to put in the collection plate as it comes around, the penny piece or the £5 note? And uh, he was a poor student and uh, he thought, well, if I put the £5 note in, I'm not going to have any supper. So um, so that was the dilemma in his, in his mind. And as the collection plate went past, they were singing a hymn. And uh, the, the line, there's a line in the hymn. It's a lovely traditional hymn. There's a line in the hymn that says, not a mite would I withhold. Not a mite. And literally, he was singing that line as the collection plate came past. And he put the penny in and kept the fiver. And uh, he, was, he was a reluctant, you know, he was a reluctant giver. And sometimes we can, you know, we can give, we can give reluctantly. We can kind of think, well, well I probably should. And, uh, and other people are, so I should probably join him. But there's a, there's a reluctance about it. And Paul says, well, you can give like that, but that's not how God wants you to give. The second way you can give is, is under compulsion. You have no choice. Uh, back in the day, certainly in the Anglican church... Uh, you had to give a tithe whether you liked it or not. Uh, the, um, you know, the, the incumbent of the parish would collect 10%. percent he collected collect a tithe. Everything would be, would be given. It was, it, was, it was the law and it was the way in which um, vicars were, uh, were paid. They took in a tithe. So if you had a big parish with lots of land, you did very well. And if you didn't, then you didn't. But that was the way. It was, a, it was compulsory. You had to give whether you liked it or not. Uh, well, Paul says, "Well, that's not how you should give either. You shouldn't be given reluctantly. You shouldn't be giving under compulsion." He says, "No, uh, you should be giving hilariously, because that's the Greek words at the end of verse uh, 7. He says, "God loves uh, uh, a cheerful giver. It's not cheerful. It's it's more than that. It's the Greek word hilarion. It's it's hilarious. It's just this is this is so much fun. This is this is just." Ridiculous. It's the point at which your heart takes over from your head. That's, that's what Paul is getting at. It's the point at which you stop thinking in terms of spreadsheets and you start thinking about, I just want to give. I don't care what I've got. I don't care how much I've got. It's like you're standing in the snow freezing and you see someone without clothes and without even thinking about it, you just strip naked and give them all your clothes. That's hilarious giving. It's when the kind of head is disengaged and the heart is engaged. Sorry, you've all got a horrible mental image now, haven't you? <laughs> so I'm, I have to try and move on from that. But that's what hilarious giving is. It's when the heart, and that's what he says. He says, each person should give what they have decided in their hearts to give. He doesn't say they should give what you've decided in your head. It's not about spreadsheets. It's not about working out, well, you know, what have I got in and what can I afford and what can... It's, no, there's, something, there's something different. that There's a different dynamic at play. And Paul, he, he sort of gets to it at the beginning of chapter 8, if you just want to turn to the first few verses of, of chapter 8, because he's using the Macedonian churches as an inspiration for the Corinthians. And uh, he says this, Uh, Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping God, with God's will. That's hilarious giving. That's when the heart has taken over from the head because the head would say, well, we're in extreme poverty. We're under severe trial. We haven't got anything to give. That's what the head would have said. But the heart has taken over. So now they're... Uh, they're Extreme poverty has been overwhelmed by overflowing joy. Overflowing joy. And that has translated into rich generosity to the extent that they're pleading with Paul to give more. That's hilarious giving. That's the point that we, uh, that we need to get to in, in our discipleship. It's, you know, it's never about paying bills it's always about responding to what we've received from Jesus. It's all about a heart response. I, I always I hate having to say sometimes, look, there are, you know, there are bills to be paid and you know, all of that. It's, we need to think, no, actually, this is a response. It's a heart response to what God has done, which is why I love the Macedonian thing that they said in verse five of chapter eight. They didn't do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. How do you become a hilarious giver? You give yourselves first to the Lord. You spend time in his presence. You spend time just dwelling in his his generosity and understanding how much he's given. And then you respond. Now, the ability to which we are able to become a hilarious giver is determined by whether or not we believe chapter 9, verse 8. And the extent to which we believe that this verse is true will determine the extent to which we are able to become an hilarious giver and give from our heart and not from our head. Because chapter nine, verse eight says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Let me read that again. God is able... To make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So if we're to become hilarious givers, we need to believe that that verse is true. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Because it's easy to read. It's much harder to believe, to really take on. Do I really believe That God is able to make all grace abound to me so that at all times I will have all that I need. Do I truly believe that? And that's kind of the crux of of this whole thing. And as I say, the the ability to which we're able to believe this verse and the truth of it will determine the extent to which we're able to become hilarious givers. And if if we get there then it just leads to an explosion of generosity in the church. One of the things the early church was known for was this bonkers giving, this kind of heart giving, not, not head giving. The early church was, you know, people looked at the early church and thought they were all mad because of the way they loved and the way they gave, not just materially, but the way they gave of themselves, the way they gave their lives, because they, they got to this point of giving hilariously, when your, your head has kind of been disengaged and it's all about your heart. And this is the first that I, I really want to kind of rest on. We are going to kind of cover the other bits, but, but I'm, I'm so challenged by this because so often what we do is we, uh, you know, we come into God's presence on a Sunday morning and, um, you know, I was just noticing in some of the words that we just sang, we were singing about the fact, you know, you know we are God's servants you know everything comes from god it's it's all his we are his servants we are 100% for him we are sold out to him we are his you know we are the we are the slaves of god and we sing that on sunday morning and we say everything is his and then we go home and on monday morning we wake up and we say oh some of it's actually mine <laughs> we have this this disconnect between what we do here in our worship and we say lord it's all yours in um, when the temple was being built in the Old Testament uh, and everything was being raised for the building of the temple and uh, when everything has been gathered together by, by David so that, uh, so that when Solomon becomes king, he's got everything that he needs in order to build the temple. This is what David says. He says, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. In other words, David's saying, We've only given back to you what was yours already. Whatever we give, it came from God in the first place. Psalm 24, verse 1 The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's all from Him. And we're just giving back to Him what is His already. And our ability to do that is determined by how well we are able to believe this voice. First, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Do we believe that is true? I, was, um, I, I feel like I've had a bit of heart surgery recently. I'll just share a bit of testimony this morning, if I may, because I've read this verse um, so many times and I've preached on this verse so many times, and I've believed this verse 100% uh, with my head, uh, but with my heart, I have doubted this verse so many times, even though I've seen God's provision so many times, and even though I've seen God's generosity, my ability to believe this verse has, has been very difficult, and just in the last few weeks, um, God has, has really done a, a work in my heart, and um, got me to a, a different place. I was, uh, away on ret- I was away on two retreats um, last week. One wasn't enough. I had to, have, <laughs> had to have one that was full of information and then another one to process all the information. But there was, um, there was a guy who was speaking at the, re- at the retreat that I was on a, a go away with a, a bunch of other evangelists. And uh, uh, we had a, a lovely guy, Will van der Hart, who came in and did a morning with us. And he was, he was talking about... Really, it was all about identity. It was all about understanding our identity in Christ and how we belong to Christ. And uh, one of the things that he focused on was the fact that everybody carries shame. And shame is not about, it's not guilt. Guilt is what you feel when you've done something wrong. Shame is about identity. And ever since... uh, Adam and Eve rejected and rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden and discovered what shame was, which was why they tried to hide and cover themselves with leaves. Every single human being has carried that same shame, that we know there's, in our hearts, there's a disconnect, there's something missing, and we find all sorts of ways to cover that shame, as Adam and Eve did. They tried to cover themselves with leaves and they hid in the garden and God said, well, where are you? And and we all do that because we are uncertain of who we are and we are unsure of who we are and we are unsure that we are loved and uh, we're unsure that we belong and we walk into a room, and we are instinctively expecting some kind of disapproval, and expecting people to judge us, and we judge, us and we carry the shame. And um, Will Van Der Hart was speaking, and he he came out with this one phrase, and he said, "Shame drives mistrust into the promises of God. Shame drives mistrust into the promises of God." And uh, when I heard that line, I was uh, I was ruined. Because I suddenly thought, wow. That's my life. Is that I know the promises of God. But the shame that I've carried all my life drives a bulldozer into them. Shame drives mistrust into the promises of God. So my head believes the promises of God. My heart mistrusts the promises of God Mm. and uh, and God opened that for me and uh, it's funny how God it's like sometimes you you know sometimes you have a you know you have a wound and and it's bandaged up and the bandage colors and and sometimes you have to kind of you have to take the bandage off in order for there to be more healing and sometimes God does that with us sometimes we carry we carry wounds and at the right time God will say okay well you need to have some more healing so we're going to take the we're going to take the bandage off. We're going to expose the wound, and that happened for me about a, a, a month ago. I won't go into all the details, but but I just became consumed with anxiety about the fact that we had we just had no money, and the trust that pays my salary was we, we lost uh, our biggest um, sponsor had to reduce his giving by ninety percent in the summer, so so we had massive shortfall. The only way to make that shortfall was to chop my salary. So and then uh, you know so you know we've got you know financial. Uh, opportunities let me put it on like that <laughs> opportunities as a church so uh, say so this was all in my mind and uh, and kind of end of August I was just consumed with with anxiety and it was all I could see was I just thought this is desperate and there's no way out and I thought why am I so consumed with this why, why am I in this place of thinking I'm desperate and there's no way out if I believe in a God who says he's able to make all grace abound to you so that all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound? I thought, what is going on here? And uh, I say the Lord sometimes, he takes the, the, the bandage off to expose the wound. And I just and I understood in, in, in a new way that all of that taps into my, my childhood and the way my mum raised us because my mum... Uh, I I think I said, you know, she wasn't loved. Her dad died when she was a baby. Her mum was a most unpleasant woman uh, who who just showed no love whatsoever. And uh, my mum grew up in poverty. Uh, She used to sleep in the bath so they could rent out the bedrooms. And uh, she just kind of grew up in, you know, in all of that. And my mum never understood that she was loved by God. She never believed or understood that God would provide for her. She worked hard all her life to try and uh, you know, please God, and, uh, and and achieve some level of perfection, because she thought if she could be perfect. God might love her, and so she raised us as children like that, and that was sewn into my heart. And so I I realised a few weeks ago, in in I mean, I've it's not I've recognised it before, but just in a fresh way, and in a way that just so disturbed me because I thought I don't want to live like this. It is so debilitating. I don't want to be consumed with this anxiety. And I realised it was because I didn't trust that God actually loved me. And I didn't trust that he had my back. And I didn't trust that he would hold good to his word. And, uh, yeah, that's quite a difficult place to get to when you've been preaching for 33 years. about (laughs) The the boundless love of God. And then you realise you're just a fraud. Well, we're all frauds, so we're all in good company. But, you know, it's just, that's the, the reality. And, uh, and so my retreat was perfectly timed because God had like, had, like, taken the bandage off and said, this is the issue. And then in his, his goodness and his grace, he took me to a place where that was dealt with. And on this, this first retreat, uh, that particular line, uh, mis- uh, shame drives mistrust into the promises of God. That was like, boom, that's, that's it. That's my, that describes my Christian journey of 41 years. Is, and I thought, how do I deal with the shame? And, and how do you deal with the shame? Well, it's by understanding the finished work of the cross. It's by understanding that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. That because of his death on the cross, I'm now enveloped in the love of God, uh, the grace of God. And so I went off... On my second retreat to Wales, to this amazing place, Bren in this house of prayer, and I took with me a book by a guy called Dane Ortland uh, uh, called Deeper. And it is, I haven't finished it because it's a book you have to read slowly, but I would recommend reading Dane Ortland's book, uh, Deeper, because it does what it says on the tin. It's about going deeper into relationship with Jesus. And he writes and speaks about the extravagant love of God. And how the cross is enough. And how we are, uh, we are loved. And uh, so I feel like I'm in, a, uh, I'm in a different place. I feel like I'm understanding how much God loves me in a way that I haven't done before. And uh, I'll tell you one of the ways in which that has manifested. Oh boy. Connect. <laughs> I have to say, working with children. <laughs> I've done that. And I did that years ago. It's what you do when you're a curate. It's like, when you first start, when you're young, you do children's work, and then you outgrow it, because you just don't have the energy. <laughs> so so I, I'll be honest, I've, I've, I've done Connect because I've had to. I've done Connect because I have to, there's no one else to do it. So I do, I've done Connect for years, and I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's, it's felt like a lead weight at the end of the week. <laughs> it's like as the week goes on I get to about Wednesday and I'm like oh it's gonna <laughs> and, then, and then I start looking at games and teaching and uh, and I'll just be honest with you you know I've done it because because I've had to do it but I've not had a I've not had a heart for it and I've kind of I've got to Friday. I'm like right grip my teeth gonna do it roll on 10 to 8 then the weekend can start. And, that's how, and literally this last week, I, I had a conversation with Joel about it and I'm like, oh, it's Connect. <laughs> but God has definitely done something in my heart because I got halfway through Connect on Friday night and I thought, I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> what happens? <laughs> I'm really enjoying this. And I thought, I'm going to look forward to next week. So God has really done something in my heart and there's, you know, but um, I'm 58 years old. I've been a Christian for 41 years and I feel like I'm just beginning to understand how much God loves me. And, uh, and, And I've been a reluctant giver and I've been a giver under compulsion, but I want to get, I want to be a hilarious giver. And that only happens when our hearts are changed and transformed, and when we stop thinking in terms of spreadsheets and income and expenditure, and we just we just give because it's mad, and we just give in a in a mad way, and uh, and that's a work of God that He does in our hearts. Uh, but it's it's about our our understanding our identity and how how we belong to God. And as Paul goes on in, in these verses, he, he says, you know, there's a connection between head and a heart. There's a connection between material and spiritual. Verse nine, he says, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Uh, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So he's saying, look, you've... Uh, You know, there's a material dynamic that goes on that God will provide for your needs. He will look after you because you are his children. So don't worry about that. He will look after you. You know, the birds have the birds are fed, the birds have nests to live in. Don't worry about that. He will supply seed to sow and bread for food. He'll also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your Righteousness. So when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus and put our trust in him, God gives to us his righteousness. We are made righteous in the sight of God. And then he says, now I've given you my righteousness. What I want to do is now expand that righteousness so there's a harvest. In other words, you will become, you will become more and more like Jesus. Your heart will become more and more like the heart of Jesus. Your thinking will become More and more like the thinking of Jesus. That's the harvest of righteousness that God wants to grow in us. But in order to do that, we need to understand the righteousness that he's given to us. That what Jesus did on the cross was enough. And again, it's this thing of trusting. Do I trust that God is going to meet my material needs? If he does, then I can be a hilarious giver. Do I trust that what Jesus did on the cross is enough? If I do, then I'm going to grow in faith. Uh, one of the things that we tend to do, one of the things that I, I have done, is, is I believe that, that uh, I was justified on the cross, that what Jesus did for me was enough. So in that moment we put our trust in Jesus, we are joined together with Jesus. And we know that we're forgiven. And then life goes on and, uh, and we mess up and we make mistakes. And what we tend to do is we tend to think that when we sin and when we mess up, uh, we, we sort of we, we, we drift away, we drift away from Jesus, and then we like oh, we think well i 've got to do something in order to close the gap and get back to where I was before God can use me so so even though we know the cross is enough, we believe that with our heads in our hearts we 're thinking. Oh, well, I need to, perhaps need to go to church a bit more often and and read my Bible a bit more often and and stop kicking the cat and say a few more prayers. And by doing those good things, you're kind of, you know, I'll kind of get back back to here. Problem is, when you, if you spend your life doing that, you never really get anywhere. What you have to do is, it's the harvest of what we've been given, his righteousness. So whatever we do... No matter how badly you may fall or mess up or, or sin or however hard you kick the cat, whatever, that's not going to change. That relationship with Jesus is not going to change. He's not going to walk away from you. His heart is for you. What actually happens is when we mess up and we, we sort of shrivel in our, in our hearts and we think we've got to... Actually, what he does is he wraps his love around us even, even more. And uh, again, it's taken me a long time to get my heart around the truth of this, that, that when I sin, it doesn't cause Jesus to step away. It actually causes Jesus to wrap his loving arms around me even more and continue to work in me. And that's what Paul is urging them. He's saying, look, you know, this is the grace. This is what God's grace does in your life. It enables you to become a hilarious giver But it also enables you to grow in righteousness and the impact of that will change the world. You see, that's what's so glorious about all of this. You see, Jesus didn't came just to pluck people from earth and send them to heaven. Jesus came to restore the earth. Jesus came for salvation. Jesus came to reach the lost with his love. And how does he do that? Well, he does that through us. And how does he do that through us? Well, he does it when our hearts are changed and we become hilarious givers. And his love explodes out of our lives. That's what he says. Um, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, people will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. You see, our material and spiritual lives are bound up together. And what happens in one sphere will affect the other. And what Paul is saying is saying, look, if you, can, if you can get into this heart place of the Macedonians. So that you are, you're kind of looking in your, you know, you're emptying your pockets. And thinking, well, I haven't got anything. But then you're just laughing your head off. So you're giving away what, what you've got anyway. If you want to get into that place. This is what will happen. People will praise God because they'll see something extraordinary in their prayers for you. Their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So it's all about him and it's all about what he has given to us and it's responding to his generosity and to his grace. Grace is all about stuff that we don't deserve and we haven't earned. It's his gift to us. So here's the question. Two questions. Do you want to become a hilarious giver? Someone who, who gives from the heart, and not from the head. That's that's what I want to be, and that's what I, I wrestle with because of my upbringing and my mom and all of that. My heart in my heart instinctively fears lack, and so wants to hoard, in, for you know, for the day there might not be enough. And God is changing my heart because I want to be a hilarious giver, where I know that God will meet my needs. I want to be a hilarious giver. And in order to do that, we have to settle on whether or not we believe this verse eight. God is able to make all grace abound to you. And that's that's a heart thing. And it requires a transformation of our hearts. So I want to just spend some time in just a few moments in quiet. Uh, quiet personal prayer and uh, just pray that the Lord would minister grace to us. Um, Paul commends the Macedonians because they they gave themselves first to the Lord.